Hello. 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 Thank you for being here. You know, middle of the afternoon. We're going to make this a little fun. Thank you all for joining me. Um, we have Amirko and Ilad Gill. Um, and I will let both of them do little brief intros on themselves because they are incredibly interesting and I won't do it enough justice. Anne? I am very interesting. <laughs> um, I'm Anne. I am the founding um, partner at Floodgate, which I founded in 2008, a really long time ago. Um, and it is a seed investment firm. So we do pre-seed and seed investing, basically pre-product market fit. Before that, um, I was a grad student at Stanford getting my PhD in cybersecurity, which is where I thought I'd start a company. Um, but then I decided VC was more interesting. Um, and then before that, I was working for a few years. Awesome. Uh, I'm Alad Gill. I spent the last 15 years or so starting, running, and operating technology companies and investing in them. Um, had a stint at Google, started the mobile team, started a company that Twitter bought, helped scale Twitter, started another company called Color Health, which is a population health software company. And then as an investor, I've backed about 40 companies worth a billion dollars or each more, um, 30 of them at the seed or Series A. So that's companies like Airbnb, Airtable, Coinbase, Gusto, Instacart, Stripe, Square, and others. Awesome. Also, both of you are probably the f very few VCs today that have PhDs still. Yes. It's a, it's a requirement, actually, being a skilled <laughs> investor. They actually take it away from you if you start investing. So uh, mine got canceled. We <laughs> um, well, I wanted to start off by talking about when we were chatting backstage, we talked a little bit about um, sort of COVID and kind of things changing. And I think, Alad, you had talked a little bit about how in maybe it was Q3 of last year, you started to actually slow down a little bit in your pace and just notice something in the market. Let's kind of just start right there. Share a little bit about what you were seeing. And, and I think you also sort of shared a little perspective of you were seeing something too. Sure, yeah. I think around September, October, um, things started to feel shaky in private markets. I think in public markets, it really started maybe in uh, November when the market started sort of leaning. And then in January, they really crashed. And on the private side, there were two or three things that really suggested that things were getting kind of unstable. Um, the first obvious one is just valuations were kind of insane in terms of um, relative to comparable history. You know, seed stage valuations had gone up two to three X over nine months. Um, as an example, I think the second thing was just the pace of investing that everybody was doing was incredibly fast. So you'd have a seed round and then three months later, you'd have a series A preempted by somebody. And then six months later with no incremental information, there'd be a series B. And so people would do three rounds of financing and, uh, that normally would take three, four years and nine months. Uh, and then lastly, I think there's been all sorts of shifts in terms of um, founders selling secondary, which I'm usually very supportive of. I mean, I, I sold a company to Twitter, and while I was at Twitter, I sold some secondary. So I think it's a good way to get partial liquidity. But you'd see people um, selling at every single round, and so there was an incentive to continue to raising money at higher and higher rounds because if you're a founder, and six months into the life of the company or nine months in, you can raise it $500 million and, and sell $5 million in secondary, there's a very strong incentive to do that. So all the incentives were aligned to have things move at a faster pace than perhaps was merited by the progress of the underlying companies. Yeah, I was going to say, and did you also sort of, you said that last year you guys slowed down your pace a little bit towards the end of the year as well. And any sort of similar thoughts to what Elad experienced? Yeah, usually we do somewhere, each partner is doing about two to five investments. And last year I only did two. Um, and I, I guess for me, it's just this pacing of investments and the, the expectations that founders had coming into a meeting. They would say, you know, you have 24 hours to make a decision. And... For me, like, and, and I'm, I'm probably about as tiger mom as it gets, 
when you get me as an investor, you're not just getting a check. And so we have to make sure that that's okay on both sides, right? And so what it felt like was I was walking into this room and if you've ever been to one of those like bachelor auctions, like the person like struts around with their shirt off and then like all the ladies are putting up their numbers and they're bidding on these people. And, and it felt like instead of just bidding, I was like asking to marry this person. Right. And, and all I had seen was this person with their shirt off. And, and for me, like, I actually need to know you. I need to know what books you read. I need to know what kind of food you like to eat. Um, and so for me, like, that relationship is actually pretty critical. And, and so it just, I just couldn't find the situations where that really worked. And so for me, it is actually finding the, the, the situations, the entrepreneurs who actually want to work with me the way I want to work with them. And, and that, that just sort of slowed down my pace in general. Yeah, my, my wife, who's in the audience, we actually met at a bachelor auction like that, so it brings back a lot of memories. So it can work out. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I love you. Back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's shaking her head. We see her. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I will. I, I sort of echo that sentiment, and I, I, I mean, we can talk about people like Alad coming into the seed world, which is sort of where I want to go. But you know, we talked a little bit about you. Your fund has traditionally been focused on seed. You're oftentimes the first check-in. You've also done some stage a little bit earlier as well. And then we obviously have total capitalists. We have angels. We have people kind of changing the pace and the structure of the way these processes work. Um, how's that affected you guys? And how are you thinking about com staying competitive? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just like sticking to my knitting, right? And I know what I'm good at. I know where I shine. And for, for, for Floodgate and for the types of investments that we're doing, we're investing at really a stage where sometimes the person doesn't even have a product. So the question is, what are you actually investing in? I'm investing in people who are capable of building incredibly fast. And I'm also investing in people who are able to think very fast. And so there's a whole process through which we're evaluating that, which again is why it takes a little bit of time to understand like, what's your pace of learning? How fast do you evolve your thinking? And how are you evolving your building process? And so oftentimes we are investing before someone even has anything really to show, definitely no traction, maybe a little bit of product. And, and that's just very different, right? And it, it takes a little bit of getting used to in terms of like, what are we looking for? Um, but it's a process that's worked really well for us. And that's why some of our best companies go through massive pivots. And when we look at the best investments that we've made, actually most of them have even had to change their name because from the time that they started the company to the time they finished, it's a completely different company. Well, and I was actually just going to ask, has process at all changed in terms of like, you've mentioned, obviously, you don't want to date with just a shirt off. You want more than that. But, you know, where are you making decisions now in shorter periods of time? There is a forcing function from sort of the market to some extent. Well, I think what it's forced me to do is go earlier so okay. that I have the time to get to know people. Our process is still pretty much the same. I mean, we are, we're getting to know individuals. We're getting to know their product. We do do due diligence. So like in the, in the two companies I invested in, I had two to four weeks to really understand the business. Yeah. Elad, you do more than just investing out of a fund. 
You also angel invest. You do all kinds of things. Tell us a little bit about how you guys are changing the world. Oh, sure. I mean, so my, my traditional model has just been to um, invest my own money. And then certain companies I was involved with started getting bigger and bigger and sort of working more. And so I started getting allocations in those companies. And so then, um, you know, there was occasions where I raised SPVs to be able to participate in a bigger, bigger way. Those are single-purpose funds that are raised just for a single investment. And then over time, that morphed into um, almost like a tiramisu cake of investing where um, I can, can continue to invest as an angel. I can invest out of fund. I can do SPVs. I can do all sorts of things. Most of my investing is still early-stage investing. Um, and I tend to get involved with things quite early. And I'm happy to be, you know, a traditional small angel check. I'm happy to help pull together around. I just, you know, ultimately I view... Um, everything I do is in service of founders, and so therefore, it kind of like what makes sense for a given yeah. um, set of founders and company at a given moment. And how do you make the distinction between what is an angel check versus what is a fund check? Uh, it's it's just dollar amount driven. Okay. It's sort of like what's the size. Got it. Got it. And out of curiosity, how long is your process? Do you even like what is your process? Do you have process? Yeah, it differs a lot in terms of whether I'm getting involved with something early versus late. And um, you know, there's lots of things I've invested in where it was one person with an idea with nothing necessarily built. You know, when I invested in Notion, it was just Ivan, the founder. Um, you know, uh, when I invested in Stripe, it had just launched, and it was like eight people or something. Um, and there's other companies where it's just been, you know, um, getting involved when perhaps they didn't even know what they were going to work on, like what eventually became Bitwise, which is a crypto index fund. Uh, so for that, the type of diligence you can do is, uh, is, has to be very different, right? Because fundamentally, it's a people investment. Um, with some market overlay, hopefully, like for something like Notion. And Notion originally, I think, was a little bit closer to like Rome Research in some ways. So it, it changed direction a little bit. Um, if it's something that's a little bit later stage, then obviously you start looking at uh, payback periods and LTV CAC and TAM and defensibility. So I think it really depends on the stage. Yeah, and I think I was going to, I mean, something for that's coming up quite a bit is, you know, you, I think we talked about this, how a company will go out to raise their seed round, and then there's a fast Series A that follows, and a fast B and a C, and there's obviously a whole range of investors who are doing, you know, the multi-stage investing or the various stages, but something that's top of mind or that I've been thinking a lot more about is, at what stage are you seeing companies finding product market fit? Is it pre-A, B, C? Like, where are we seeing this today in the market? And this is sort of open-ended, either of you can answer, but... Uh, I'm, I'm looking at you a lot right now. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think it's all over the place. I think um, the stage of company is in some sense a misnomer because it's often a series of stock that's raised. And as each incremental round gets bigger, people create a new, even earlier stage thing because it's a small round again, right? And so um, seed rounds. So when I invested, when I raised the first round for my first company, Mixer Labs, which was Sequoia and a bunch of people backed it, um, it was $1.5 million on a $6 million pre-money, and people thought it was an insane round. They said, oh my gosh, your valuation is so high. What year was that? And that's that? like a Series A, and it's so much money, and how are you going to spend all that money and all this stuff? And today, that's like a friends and family yeah. pre-seed or something. Totally. Right? <laughs> and at six, people will be like, oh my God, you sold too cheap, right? And so um, we keep renaming rounds, right? So we have seed, uh, which are now, say, five to seven million. Now you're seeing $10 million seeds. And then we've created pre-seed as a whole new category to effectively be seed. And then I'm sure there's going to be some new terminology for something because pre-seeds are getting there. <laughs> Compost. We also have a term called mango seeds now, actually. Mango seeds? Yeah, the in-between. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's interesting is when in 2008, when Mike and I first got started, the idea was that... Founders used to sell 50% of their company for $5 million. That was the standard. 
five on five, right? I tell my students this now and they're like chin drops to the ground. They're like, how stupid were these entrepreneurs? It's like, well, that's the only choice you had. And so it was this innovation that we brought in of like 500,000 is the new 5 million. That's what my partner used to say. And, and so it was this new thing that you would sell way less than 10, 50% of your company for, you know, $500,000. And to think now, you know, you fast forward 14 years and people think it's crazy to sell 10% for, you know, certainly for $500,000, but, you know, two or $3 million is even pushing the limits. And so it's just interesting to see how, how it has evolved over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually, and it kind of makes me think a little bit more about, I know both of you have actually talked a lot about markets and organizations. And I think today, uh, there, we actually have a lot of founders here today too. And I think everyone is probably thinking about recruiting or is actively recruiting and paying prices for you know whatever they need to see. I think something that we often talked about with our founders is how to win in recruiting and you know how are you seeing some founders being able to win uh, great talent whether it's engineering whether it's you know distribute uh, people in marketing community whatever it may be how are p startups starting to do that in your portfolio specifically well, I'll, I'll give one example, actually, where we're mutually invested. It's a company called Applied Intuition. And um, Applied Intuition doesn't have all of the benefits, right? It's not in the middle of a big city. It's, I think it's in Sunnyvale. It's, it's like you know, a technical company. Um, it's an AV. Um, but they are able to recruit some of the very best talent. And so I, I still teach at Stanford in the School of Engineering, and when I look around, some of my best engineering students, without any prompting from me, they're going to work for Applied Intuition. And the question is why? It's because the leadership there has an incredible narrative about what they're building and why. And each person who goes and works at Applied Intuition becomes this incredible advocate for why other people should go and work at Applied Intuition. I've never seen anything like it. And so I think what's critical is actually not only to, you know, it's not about the, the benefits and the, the fancy schmancy office or the great t-shirts that you're giving. It is the actual work that you're doing. Is it meaningful? Why are you doing it? Who are the leaders within this organization? Are they people you can look up to? And fundamentally, are your peers some of the smartest people that you've seen around you? The answer is yes to all of those. It's not just how much you pay, but really it's the work that you can give. And, and I, I, I'm constantly um, just admiring the way Caster is able to do that at Applied Intuition. Yeah. I, well, and I was going to ask, like, what are, I mean, actually, a lot I'll ask you this is, what are you seeing within organ or? What do you think within organizations that leads to bad outcomes? There are all these organizations that are built around great talent, great culture, and all the things that Anne just said. But we're also seeing companies starting to implode. And what is leading to bad outcomes and what's the root of it? Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting because people always talk in the early stages about how you need to find really great people and just back them and whatever they do will be great. And I think that's one of the great fallacies of Silicon Valley or of tech. And I'm very much in the product market fit triumphs over everything else. In other words, if you have something that you build that customers really want, the market will literally pull that out of you as a company. And that's why often you'll see something which is a broken product. Like Twitter for years when I worked there was constantly going down. 
It had the fail whale and everything else, and people kept using more of it. Every time I'd go down, there'd be a news story, and more people would sign up. And that's because people really wanted to use the product. There was sheer product market fit. And I think that where people get confused is they focus on all these other things that don't matter. Um, you know, they'll, they'll focus on their fundraising rounds. They'll focus on who's the really exciting, famous person they hired, or whatever it may be. And the reality is, do your customers actually care about what you've built? And um, if not, how can you as quickly as possible iterate to that? And when all is said and done, I think um, startups fundamentally phase for th fail for three reasons. Uh, number one is they lack to get product market fit. Number two is they run out of money, which means they didn't get product market fit. And number three, a founder fight, where you just start beating on each other as founders to the point where you just can't move forward. And fundamentally, I think that sums up like 99% of, of uh, company failures. Yeah, I mean, you kind of just, I, I think that this sort of gets into the question of something that I've been thinking about is like, you are identifying markets, obviously, when you're saying, you know, you're going after a company that has, pro or that has product market fit or can get to product market fit. And how are you identifying markets that are sort of ahead of the curve or you believe a team is already in the right direction of finding product market fit? How do you identify a market in advance of that? Yeah, um, so we, we look a lot for insights. And when I think about um, the founders, we really need to see some sort of founder market fit as well. But the market itself is actually quite important. And within that market, usually what you're looking for is an inflection that's about to happen. And that inflection is, is an adoption inflection. It's usually revenues or users. And there's a reason why something's about to change. Sometimes it's a new technology that's been introduced. Sometimes it's regulatory. Sometimes it's actually the way the society believes something has fundamentally changed, like remote work. And those things can then change what a product capability is. It can introduce a new kind of business model. It can introduce a new distribution path. Um, it can introduce new pricing. And so that then leads, those changes then leads directly to something that is new in terms of that adoption curve. And so the more you have secrets along that path, what's the change, what does it impact, why does it then create an adoption inflection? Those are the things we're looking for. I don't care if it's in the pet industry, in beauty, in AI, whatever it is, those are the things that I'm always trying to tie together. And, and so that's why I'm, I'm relatively industry agnostic, but I'm always curious about where those inflections lie. Yeah. Well, I was actually gonna ask Elad, is there an example of a company that you can talk about that you've invested in. You obviously shared the story about Twitter, but a company that you've invested in that started off in sort of a choppy start, but you knew it, they, you would identify it as a market and then a pro, and you knew they would get product market fit and you were unknown, the team was unknown or... Yeah, or I think those are the most two separable things. There's the things that you think are going to die that succeed. Yeah. And then the things that kind of work despite themselves and sometimes became amazing companies. And, you know, when I joined Google... Um, uh, Larry had just gotten rid of all middle managers, and so uh, he he basically made it such that every engineering director had 50 to 100 people reporting to that person, which meant that you never saw your manager. And so it was completely chaotic because all these people had no idea what to work on because they had no direction, and it became this self-organizing system where certain groups of people ended up building amazing things, and it had this gray market for talent. I started the mobile team by just poaching people from different teams, and their managers didn't know they were working on it because their managers just never met with them, right? And so 
in some cases, you see such raw product market fit. As long as you attract great people, something amazing will happen. Yeah. In other cases, companies should be dramatically bigger than they are, right? You could, you could make arguments around a variety of different companies that sold for a variety of reasons, very legitimate ones that should have been 10 times bigger, 100 times bigger. Sometimes they were very well run, right? Instagram exited. It should have been a $100 billion company. Um, so that's one class of company. The other are the ones where um, you're like, oh my gosh, this thing just is never going to work. And you know, you you're kind of you try to help, and you and then suddenly the thing works. Yeah. Um, and there's some there's some pretty amazing examples of that. I'm a big Notion power user, but it did take a while for Notion to get to doing what they do. And now there's like a whole trove of videos online of being a Notion power user, how to use it incredibly well. So. I'm sure there are other companies like that. Um, talking a little bit more about themes, I know that both of you are spending time. We've talked a little bit backstage about AI. We've talked a little bit about vertical SaaS. I actually first want to talk, Anne, a little bit about crypto. I know you mentioned you obviously teach a class at Stanford, and you said basically, what, 50% or more of your students are starting crypto companies right now? Sort of what is the general thesis that, that they're excited about? Is it just the rush to crypto, or is there something more in there? I just think it's more. Um, so I teach a class in the School of Engineering, and what we what we found is that uh, more than 70% of our students are interested in crypto. And it's not just on the Web3 layer. We're seeing students get really deep into the protocol layer. And so the, I think what's driving it is they see it as empowerment for themselves. Right. Like this is the builder's ecosystem. Yeah. It's an ecosystem built for and by engineers. And so just the power of that's really amazing to see. And so, you know, we have students who are doing um, cross-chain technologies. Um, and they're, you know, they're juniors. I have like a freshman who's building something pretty technical. Yeah. Um, and then you have, you know, people who are really interested in the art world and NFTs, and they're really excited about what's going to happen at that Web3 layer of like gaming and music and sports. And so I think there's so many different on-ramps that, that these students have such excitement. And so, you know, I just go where the talent is. Yeah, well, I think we can leave a little bit of the crypto chat to our awesome next panelist. So I'm going to move into a little bit more. A lot. You and I were talking a little bit more about AI and talking about kind of open AI in general, obviously the different applications. I actually want to start with, do you think there are going to be competitors to open AI and what do they look like? Yeah, I, I definitely think um, competitors to open AI are coming and they're probably coming in the next 12 to 18 months. I think there's been a flurry of new sort of startup formation in that general area and if you think about it, um, it's potentially one of the most transformative things. It's, it's a wave that's coming now besides uh, what's happening in Web3 and crypto. And it's kind of funny because there are certain technology trends where for years everybody says now is the year that this thing is really, really going to matter, right? That happened with smartphones. Um, you know, I don't know if people remember the Palm Pilots from the 90s. Those were going to be smartphones and it was finally going to connect everybody. And then it finally happened. And I think with AI, there's this big wave of um, what's known as natural language processing which is machines understanding documents and um, how people speak. And um, there's already really interesting substantiations of that, like uh, something called Copilot, which was a collaboration between um, GitHub and OpenAI, where they were able to train um, uh, AI system to write code effectively. So you're writing code, and it'll insert what's the next chunk of code that you want to write as a developer. So you have machines now actually contributing to programming. And that should sweep through everything. You should be able to open your inbox and all your emails should already be answered, and you should just click OK to send them, right? So there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff coming. Yeah. 
Well, we could keep talking because I feel like you both let me kind of go into any different path and I, I sort of let them know that I'm going to go anywhere with this. But I like to do a little lightning round wrap up. So I'm going to do three quick questions and then really quick answers from both of you. So, um, Anne, I'm going to go first with you. If you were starting a company today, consumer or enterprise? Consumer. A lot. Enterprise. Okay. As founders. Actually, crypto. Okay. Um, as founders, it's both. Okay. <laughs> As founders are thinking about fundraising, any advice on how they can differentiate their process? That's a big question, sorry. One word. Four words. You go. Raise the pre-seed round. Okay, <laughs> a lot. Come with something built. Okay, and then a book recommendation for people in the audience? Fiction, Lincoln Highway by Amar Tolles. Elon? Uh, fiction would be Crafting with Chess, which is a lit RPG book, which is like a super nerdy like, sub-genre right now. Okay. And then nonfiction would be The Victorian Internet, which is a book about um, how a lot of things around the telegraph really mirror what eventually happened in the internet, even though it was the 1800s. That's awesome. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate Thank it. You. Uh, thanks Thank so much you. for including us.